The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News, and I'm coming to you from Connecticut in the USA this week. Well, the other day I spoke to David Malpass, the president of the World Bank, to get his view on how the organization he's been running for nearly two years now is helping fight the many challenges posed to poor nations by the COVID-19 epidemic. As you'll hear, the World Bank is working on a couple of important fronts. Among these, it's playing a role in ensuring poor nations get the coronavirus vaccines that are now being administered at pace in rich nations like the U.S. and the U.K., One of the things David said the World Bank is focusing on is trying to standardize vaccine contracts that countries are signing with drug makers and pushing manufacturers to be more open about where doses are headed. He's basically hoping that the World Bank can play a role in making sure that countries aren't hoarding the same way that consumers did with toilet paper and things like that at the height of the crisis. David also discussed debt relief for poor countries and advocated extending relief beyond June of this year, which is something that had already been agreed a year ago with the IMF as well. Let's see if that happens. And we talked about how the World Bank is working to create financial incentives for poor countries to reduce their carbon emissions as part of global efforts to fight climate change. Give a listen. David, it is great to to see you and to talk to you. It's been a while. I think the last time you and I spoke was when you were at the Treasury and I was still in the States. So certainly a lot has happened. Not only did you become the, uh, the head of the World Bank, um, you've had to run the World Bank at, a, at a, just an absolutely momentous uh, moment in history. I'd love to just get, you know, just start with a sort of big picture kind of question, like what, when, you know, thinking about development, thinking about eradicating poverty, we've now gone into, we've been through one year of a plague effectively. How is that, you know, what have you learned from, from this experience uh, over the past year? Good to be with you, Rob. Well, one, one thing to learn or recognize is, the, uh, is the, the severe consequences for poorer people. And, and that, means, uh, that means people in developing countries, that means particularly women and children. And it's, it's not just, uh, it's, it's not just uh, the COVID itself, which is bad enough, but it's all the the collateral damage that has occurred. That's the tourism industry. That's the food insecurity. Uh, those problems have been deep in the countries, and it also then brings out the importance of how, how do the, each different country find its response to this. Uh, basically, it's a catastrophe that struck the world. So that's that's what we work on every day, really. Yeah, I mean, have, do you think this crisis has exposed uh, just how unequal or how unfair, and not to mention underprepared, the world was, or the or the global economy is? I mean, has it exacerbated those fault lines that we knew were there, but made them clear? It it has done that. One area is is the straightforward. That's the healthcare delivery system, which in the advanced economies is is more advanced, and in the poor countries simply is not there. And so, as you have a health related crisis, it discloses that that weakness. I think one other weakness that I'll mention, or one other uh, inequality, is the ability of the advanced economies to provide stimulus uh, to maintain jobs and keep companies open for the, for the bigger companies. I, I, 
I'm, I'm concerned that the inequality is occurring both in the advanced economies where, where the people in the informal sector lose their jobs and others keep their jobs. So that's an inequality in that way. And then also the inequality of the, between advanced and, and, and poor countries, those are exacerbated in this crisis. And specifically the fiscal stimulus that's been, that's able to be done in the advanced economies is much, much bigger. They just simply borrow huge amounts of money, trillions and trillions of dollars, and will pay for it later. Uh, that, that option is not available for the, for the poorer countries. And then the, the, the role of the central banks, I think, is, is also significant, where in the advanced economies, they've, they've uh, been able to use their balance sheets and expand their balance sheets dramatically in order to buy the bond instruments of the, of the advanced economies. So the, both of those uh, macroeconomic functions adds to the inequality problem. Yeah, I mean, let's let's sort of look at some of the uh, some of the things that the World Bank is doing to to deal with this. I mean, start. I guess let's start with the vaccination program. You're of course involved. Um, what, I mean, but maybe you can give us a little. What's the World Bank's role? How can you get things going that that uh, and make sure that the vaccinations aren't just um, you know reaching the rich countries, as which you say um, have these healthcare delivery systems that you know you can see it in the U.S., you can see it in the U.K., you can see it in Israel. How do you? What, what's the role of the World Bank here? The World Bank is is unique in its global uh, uh, breadth. So we work in a huge number. I, I don't even know 180 developing countries. Uh, that includes small island states. That includes big economies like uh, Nigeria and Ethiopia and and so on around the world. India, of course, and Pakistan. Um, and so uh, uh, at at as COVID hit the bank was able to mobilize and generate a lot of programs. There's the mechanisms to absorb or to deal with the volume that was needed. Uh, we were able to expand the delivery from the, from the bank uh, that, that, uh, by 65% in calendar year 2020. Uh, and then as the vaccine possibilities became available, we worked fast in order to do assessments of the various countries. We were able to do a hundred different country assessments of their readiness to deliver vaccines. And then now we're in the process of setting up financing systems for those countries so that they can pay for the vaccines either through COVAX or through manufacturers. So I. I, I guess the, the bottom line is the bank's got the breadth to deal with a truly global crisis like this. And you, you've been working, you've spoken a bit about the need for increased transparency of vaccine contracts between manufacturers and buyers, in this case, let's say governments. I mean, what, 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 are, what are the pitfalls there? What are we worried about? What is the World Bank concerned might happen there? The, 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 a challenge was as everyone, uh, be, uh, as, as, as people began to want this to happen, the vaccines, then there, there was a, a drive to have, to, to say that there were contracts when in reality, maybe it was a memorandum of understanding, you know, this gets into the legal details of how much of the, uh, of the vaccines were under contract 
how much were under options and how much was a little bit wishful thinking in terms of the of the delivery schedules. So one role that the World Bank has played is to try to uh, ac actually see the contracts and encourage help countries uh, uh, develop contracts that would actually get them deliveries. Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, if you if you're aware a hurricane is coming uh, and so and you've you, you 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 call the the uh, rental car company and you you reserve 100 cars we have to recognize that that disadvantages people that really needed the car. You're only going to take one of the cars, but you reserved a hundred just in case you needed them. Um, and so we've got some part of that now where there's more vaccines being reserved uh, than, than, than countries can actually use. So we're encouraging people to disclose their, their contracts that they have and that they need, and that will make available more supply for the, for the poor countries. So it's a, it's a sort of a mechanism to stop hoarding, I suppose. To or... stop hoarding. And also it's very important on the supply side. We have a sizable window, $4 billion through IFC, where we can buy new production, but we're, it's very hard to do that when you don't know who has spoken for the existing production. So, you, you know, there is this uncertainty in the world of how much new production is actually needed. Well, that depends on how much of the existing production has actually been contracted. And that is non-transparent right now. What's your, what's your best sense of, of how long it will take to get, I don't know, to think, you know, the, the developing world uh, to a point where herd immunity has been reached through vaccinations. I mean, how, how far behind, say, the, the U.S., the U.K., Western Europe, will it be? I, I can't answer that question. What we have is uh, in, in March and into April, we have, uh, uh, it looks like, 30 operations, some of them large, for example, to support vaccinations in, in uh, Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Bangladesh, some of, the, some of the bigger developing countries. Those are moving through our board for approval, and we will begin to see what the contract situation is for those countries, how much deliveries can they actually uh, lock in uh, using the funding that we, that we can provide. Um, and it's not until you get to that point where you have money and you're ready to buy that you can really get through this, uh, this lack of transparency in the contracting situation. So we're trying to, trying to break that loose. And our goal is to have as many people vaccinated as possible quickly in a fair and a safe manner. What, what, how, what can you do to try to break through some of the myths or the, the concerns myths really that out there about the vaccinations. I mean, you look at some countries not asking you to be specific about like Tanzania, say, or whatever, but you do have these instances where public health authorities are basically driving against the science. And you just wonder if that, what role can the World Bank play to try to, 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 try to be an honest broker for that kind of uh, information? Yeah. You know, there's some limits to our role because we're not trying to do the science. We're not an evaluator. We're not a stringent regulatory authority, which, uh, you know, the, the, the advanced economies operate those. And WHO has a, has a process to evaluate actual vaccines. So we're, we're, we're neutral in that we want to see those. We want to see safe vaccines. One thing we can do is help with the communication of it in countries. It, that's, that was part of our assessment 
back at, at toward the end of 2020 with the, the with countries to see are they ready to deliver the vaccines, but also have they taken the communication steps to encourage uh, their 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 people to get vaccinated when those are ready. Um, so I think those are all ongoing. One of the things going on now also is the availability of several different kinds of vaccines from different parts of the world. Um, and so that that adds to the uh, availability. I think it's a good development in general. And but that it also means that countries are having to choose uh, as they as they have financing available, they they're uh, choosing a mix a mix of different vaccines that they'll be purchasing or 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 taking delivery of. Let's turn a little bit to, to money. I mean, you, you mentioned that one of the things that we've seen as a result of this crisis. I mean, the big rich countries have been able to raise lots of money. They've been able to create uh, fiscal stimuluses. They have uh, stimuli. They have central banks pumping money in. They're able to afford this crisis. But there are so many countries in the world that, that don't have that, that resource or those, those rec the recourse to finances. What have you, uh, how is the World Bank? I mean, there's debt relief is one one way to deal with it. Um, we could talk a little bit about that, but just a general sort of philosophical uh, approach uh, at the moment. How has the World Bank changed it as a result of this crisis? For for our own operations, we've committed to and are delivering uh, at the maximum uh, effort that we can in terms of resources to the to the developing uh, countries. This year, um, we 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 are borrowing a hundred billion dollars. That's the bond portfolio or the bond issuance of the World Bank Group uh, in, during during the crisis, which is a, a big expansion. And I mentioned the increase by sixty five percent of our delivery from the. Uh, uh, from uh, uh, two of our arms, IBRD and IDA, uh, and so these are these are big, time-intensive expansions for the World Bank Group. Those 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 fundings, whether they're even if they're in the form of grants, uh, but they're, they're both grants and loans. But they and also equity investments from from some of our arms. But they take. Um, they take legal, you know, lawyers in order to help facilitate it. It takes people connecting with the countries. So it's just a big, a big undertaking in order to try to be as responsive as possible. So we're doing that, uh, and it's it's a a big. It for some countries, it's a big portion of what they can what what they can get. The the poor countries have also been uh, used to getting remittances from some of their right. workers who are working abroad. That's gone down a lot. So that's that's putting a strain on the countries. The IMF puts in resources and that's welcome. Uh, the uh, uh, and then but the private sector flows have have been substantially reduced. And so that creates a challenge for many of the poor countries that we're working on. Uh, and you mentioned debt reduction or debt relief is one important part of this. If the country had been expecting to have income, let's say from tourism, and that just cut off overnight for many of the countries, then how do they adjust in terms of their payments on their debts? Um, that's that's also a challenge. So you're, I mean, we have had a moratorium for to some degree on you know a, a debt mm -hmm. relief. Plan. I mean, do you think that needs to be extended further? And what's what's the what is the horizon for for sort of going back to a more normalized system of of debt uh, repayment? 
um, Kristalina and I in uh, March of 2020. So at the beginning of the crisis, I called for a moratorium on the payments to the official bilateral creditors and the private sector creditors for for the for the uh, for the Ida countries. That's the the 75 poorest countries in the world. Um, that that was discussed uh, extensively by the G20 and endorsed. That's the group of 20 major. Uh, biggest uh, economies um, that, uh, and so during the year 2020, there was a moratorium that uh, that was applied. That not all of the uh, not all of the creditors participated. So the the uh, the the um, the percentage of the of the possible savings that the countries could have achieved, it looks like only one third. Was actually achieved through the through the the debt suspension initiative. Um, so I and it runs through June of 2021. So there's a few more months to run. I support a uh, an extension of it through the end of 2021. That will be a topic of discussion for the for the G20 this year, and I'm supportive of that. Um, and and I I think there will be work on that. But it's not a magic solution. It it defers some of the payments, but within the context of how it operates, the countries then are charged interest uh, on the deferred amounts. So the interest is compounding at a rather rapid rate, even for the poorest countries. So I think there's the need for going beyond that suspension into actual uh, sustainability issues for these countries. So actually re redrafting or haircutting some of these things and reducing the actual dimension of the debt. I think for some countries, there needs to be that. Uh, and that that's happened through history. You, there have been instances where there's a where there's a buildup, an over buildup of debt, and then it it there's a there's a reduction process. And that's the world's working through that now in terms of uh, uh, what's the right thing to do, what's necessary. Some of the countries, the debt is simply unsustainable, uh, and so we're looking for ways that there can be a reduction in the actual amount of the debt, so the people of the country can can see beyond see beyond the debt into their future. Is there in what where does the the role of some of the the debt that's not so obvious, not transparent. I mean, I'm thinking mainly about China, for instance, which has, has, has certainly used as part of its diplomacy. It's, it's, uh, as it's been a big creditor uh, in Africa and other parts of the world. How, uh, what, what can you do to bring China into a more transparent, more cooperative global system to reduce some of these burdens and, uh, and help some of these countries get out of their debt traps? As you think about debt, there are positive aspects of debt. You know, it's enabling for people that don't have money. Debt is a is a big positive. And so, as you think about uh, how to have have uh, uh, have supportive systems, um, transparency is a key part of that. I I pushed for that when I was at the U.S. Treasury in 2017 and 2018, and I've been very pleased with the continuity of that initiative um, by by countries through the, through the G20 and in other processes. So we're working to have more and more of the debt that countries take on 
be disclosed in terms of the existence of the debt. That's a starting point. What are the terms? What's the maturity? What's the interest rate charged on the debt? It, what, what type of collateral or requirements uh, and conditions and covenants are on that debt? And so we've made some progress. Uh, the World Bank keeps uh, a, a great deal of statistics on the debt and we're building those statistics. It's a system called the, uh, the IDS, the International Debt S Statistics, which we publish uh, on an annual basis. And it includes a lot of information about the, the, uh, uh, the debts of developing countries and who their creditors are. So we're making progress. To give you an example, one of the things that hadn't been getting disclosed uh, sufficiently is if a central bank makes a loan to another central bank, uh, they it might be treated as a swap but not a debt, even though the country uh, was it 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 had all of the other characteristics of debt. It paid interest. It had to be returned, and so on. And so that now is being better disclosed as debt, uh, and that gets to some of the transparency core uh, issues. In other areas, I'm I'm it's a uh, it's a challenge because there are still contracts out there, uh, big ones, uh, where they haven't been published, and so it's hard for for others to invest in a country where there hasn't been disclosure of the contracts. E Ecuador is an example of, of that and some, some other notable uh, countries, large countries uh, that uh, have contracts where you don't know what the terms are and how the terms have been changed over time. Right, and that makes it difficult for other creditors, you know, you don't know, you don't really know what the, the overall picture, the repayment or asset picture is for a country. It, exactly. And it also makes it uh, difficult for the people of the country because they don't know what their governments have contracted for, uh, and they don't know how much they, the people, are on the hook. So it's tempting for us, for a government, to enter those kinds of contracts because it may get the benefit in the short term, uh, but it, it leaves a challenge for the fairness issue uh, for the people of the country down the line. I think the best, uh, the, the best is uh, to have more transparency, substantially more transparency. Same thing on these vaccine contracts that if you're entering into a contract that's secret, it raises the question: Why are you doing that, and uh, uh, what what are you what are you keeping away from the public uh, domain? Yeah, I mean, I guess is there a way to bring? I mean, the big the, the big creditor we're talking about out there, of course, is China. I mean, is there a way to bring them into the fold? Is there a way to does the Paris Club play a role? How is what's the mechanism to do that? One is to encourage China to be transparent in its contracting, and they've they've recognized some of these challenges, and in general uh, have been part of the G20 consensus that formed uh, in 2020 on these issues. So, uh, in in theory, uh, they're on board with the idea of more transparency. In the case of Ecuador, for example, there was a debt restructuring in 2020 uh, where they where there was disclosure of the previous contracts. Uh, but not of the current contract that they have for the purchase of oil uh, with with from from Ecuador. So it leaves open what are the terms of those of those contracts. Um, yeah. And so th this is 
an ongoing challenge that there, it, there it's clear that there's some advantages to the to the lender to for keeping some of the terms uh, uh, unknown or, or or private they put in one of the things we're working to try to avoid as much as we can is countries entering into contracts where there's a confidentiality clause um, that that's been a, that's been a big challenge for certain of the of the individual countries that we work in that they've they've uh, allowed that clause to enter into their contracts and then it blocks knowledge of by the world of how much is owed and it makes it difficult then to invest into those countries yeah let me ask you about climate change i mean many many people look at uh, the covid-19 crisis in some ways you could say it was a sort of warm up uh, right for a sort of global catastrophe. We know that climate change is going to have extremely deleterious effects on communities, on agriculture, on, on just a, basically life on the planet Earth. What? Um, how are you using this moment to kind of you to ensure that the, what the World Bank does is is sort of helping us to get to that 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 new level that to reduce the carbon emissions. Um. The, over the over the years, there's been a an acceleration of activity by the by the World Bank into these areas, and that's particularly true now. 2020 was uh, was the biggest year. Uh, it was my first year as president of the World Bank. It was the a record year for the World Bank's uh, investments in in climate uh, uh, related issues, and will be bigger in 2021. Uh, the our current year and then even more going forward. So we've raised our targets uh, for, for how much uh, engagement the bank has done. That's one, one part of what we're doing, but there are several more that I'll mention. Um, you know, the Paris Agreement uh, is based on uh, countries uh, committing to changes uh, in what are called the NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contributions. And so as, as countries have done that, uh, it's it's important to have those uh, uh, be meaningful in terms of the impact they'll have on greenhouse gas emissions uh, and on the country's uh, preparedness for the changes that are going on. So we're working directly with the countries to try to improve the quality of their NDCs and therefore their alignment or their relationship with the Paris Agreement. So that activity is going on. Another is the the uh, the statistics. One important thing in in the in the climate change area is to have uh, good data and understanding of what the major emitters of uh, greenhouse gases are. That means carbon dioxide, but that also means methane and some of the other major greenhouse gases. And so we're working to have more uh, more diagnostics. The World Bank is well suited to that. This is you know uh, one one portion of what the World Bank does is collects uh, and develops statistics and data, for example, on poverty. That's an important uh, uh, part of the World Bank's mission. And so you need data to know whether you're making progress, where there are gaps. And so we're doing that same kind of uh, exercise on climate. And the bank was doing that before, but we're putting ever more effort into that on uh, on climate, so I'll mention those points, and there are several, there are many aspects of this in order to get the progress uh, that's needed in this area. 
the, oh, I, I should give background, Rob, the, you know, the World Bank is the biggest by far multilateral financer of climate, uh, of climate initiatives. I was involved early on. Uh, it, so in the 1980s, I was at the Treasury Department in a previous, in the Reagan administration. And it was at a time when the bank created the Environment Division as part of our capital increase for the World Bank that occurred in 1988. So it was, I testified to Congress and it was a, a, an involved process to have the bank take into account more and more the environmental consequences, which are now the climate consequences of the various activities of the bank and also of the client countries. And what, what can you do from a debt perspective? I mean, is there a way to link, I don't know, to create incentives for countries so that based around their reduction of, of greenhouse gases that it, I, I don't want to, I'm not sure you want to be punitive, um, but there must be a way so that, you know, that, that, that countries are, are incentivized uh, through, through the financial system. What, what can you do in that regard? This, this takes place uh, regularly enough as, as we talk about the transparency of debt, for example, within the IDA, uh, the, the, that's the, the very soft loan portion of the World Bank that does grants and, and loans to low-income countries. There's the concept that the countries can get more money if they're more transparent. So it's a logical connection uh, of the two. Uh, we don't have that on the climate side, but in concept, we can think of it that the country actually needs money in order to do the preparations that are needed that are related to climate. That Some of those are to reduce the uh, some of the changes needed. One is one kind is called mitigation, which is the idea that the country uh, should reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. And in some ways that may be costly. So they have to, they have to uh, uh, retrofit old, old plants or shut them down, for example. That's just an, an example. There's much more to it. Uh, and then that same activity has to take place on adaptation. So there's mitigation, uh, which is reduction of greenhouse gases, and uh, adaptation, which is being prepared for the changes that are coming. One easy example of that is for people not to live close uh, to a floodplain because there, there are frequent storms, there, there are uh, changes going on that will affect them. And so moving them is, is expensive and the country needs to find plans to do that. So we can work with the countries on, uh, uh, on how to do that, but it's expensive. So one source of funding for that is this debt relief that we talked about uh, uh, earlier. So if, if if the debt servicing that the country can do saves money, they can devote those resources to, uh, to healthcare, to education, and to climate change. And so we're trying to find ways to put that all together in a way that's uh, helpful to the, to the poorest countries. We're talking, I, I need to really emphasize countries that are facing in many cases, 
uh, 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 hunger in in uh, in many cases also malnutrition that affects that affects the way children grow. You know, stunting is still a major problem for many countries in the world uh, that takes resources. There has to be education in order to understand why that's happening, how to get the families away from the uh, either the diet or the the water sources that are contributing to uh, malnutrition. These are all activities. And so we need to find sources of funding uh, that can really improve the outcomes. So David, just one other, sort of not a, a mood music question. So you were, um, you were nominated and, and received unanimous support from the, the shareholders of the World Bank under the previous administration of Donald Trump. Um, you're, but the majority of your of your uh, term will be under the Biden administration, of course. So, I mean, what is what is your what's shifted? How has the music, the mood shifted? Uh, you know, since January, um, for, and, and how does that relate to? I don't mean politically, but just how does that relate to you guys do, going forward on these vaccines, these climate issues, these debt issues? You know, I, so I work for the World Bank and we have shareholders. The U.S. is the biggest shareholder. So obviously we listen very carefully to what the, the mood, the music is uh, from the U.S. But as you think about the problems that the World Bank is facing, they're pretty continuous. They involve uh, poverty. They involve uh, the challenges of how do you raise living standards? How do, how do children get educated? How do girls get educated in countries that haven't been used to educating girls uh, fully or fairly enough. Um, and so those, those, are, those are pretty steady uh, challenges uh, that, that cross US administrations. So the reality of our relationship, uh, the World Bank's been used to working with both uh, parties in the in the U.S. and the same in other countries. You know the 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 work of the World Bank continues as governments uh, change. One area that uh, that we're receptive to is as the U.S. is uh, as a bigger focus on uh, on on climate change. That's something the World Bank's been working hard on and has, uh, as I as I mentioned, is already the world the biggest funder by far and is growing uh, rapidly in that area. So we'll we'll be able to continue that work. Uh, one other thing I'll mention is the the new U.S. Treasury Secretary Jan, Janet Yellen is a world-renowned economist with a particular emphasis or, or with one of her many interests in poverty uh, reduction and alleviation. That's a core mission of the World Bank. And so we're very happy for that, uh, for that insight, uh, uh, that particular insight uh, from the U.S. and the new administration. Uh, and I'm looking forward to working with the, with the Biden administration, but also with the U.S. government in general, uh, as, as the World Bank has done in the past. Well, can I just a sort of final question, sort of philosophical one? I mean, I know you're an economist, of course, and you just mentioned Janet Yellen's focus on, on on poverty reduction. What's your what's your sort of what's the David Malpass theory of developmental economics? What's the best way to reduce poverty in in a nutshell? I know this isn't you know, there's a lot to it, but how do you sort of see it philosophically, David? I think that people around the world in all countries have the potential to really 
grow, to have their lives improve, to have their families uh, be fed and have nutrition. Uh, and so the, the go goal of development is to have systems within where they live. So that is usually a nation of some type that allows them to reach that, uh, that potential. And th that, so there needs to be assistance from their government and from outside forces, you know, investors and from uh, development institutions like the World Bank, those can help. But a lot of the, uh, a, a lot of the issues that we face are the policies themselves within countries that, uh, so I'm ever optimistic that we can, that we can uh, help countries find a path that their people can really uh, 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 improve their lives rapidly. That's I've been at this since really uh, in the in the in the government se setting since 1984. My first trips were to were to Guatemala and Honduras in, in 1984, and and you know the the it's an ever great challenge uh, because those countries you know have have been left behind in many ways by the rest of the world. But I do. I'm firmly of the view, the optimistic view, that the people uh, could uh, be fully participating in a in a rapid advance, and so our goal is to find help find that path. Well, so you, will you be on any trip soon? I guess you haven't been able to travel much, huh? Uh, I haven't been traveling um, uh, internationally, but I I hope to. It, uh, and we have some things coming up. You know, there's a very full agenda on the climate side, which uh, which needs some you know personal interaction. And so there may be uh, uh, one of the you know there are some major events there, and also the G7 and the G20. I would like to be going to uh, uh, developing countries uh, as I did in my first year with the World Bank. So I'm. I, I, it's not exactly something that you look forward to, and yet it's a critical part of the job. So I'm going to try to be putting together uh, some trips um, that in in order to have th those are critical interactions, uh, and and World Bank people need to be traveling more. You know, we don't have uh, uh, preferential treatment within the the vaccination system, so we're the, so people are looking. Uh, forward to uh, the Washington D.C. vaccinations for headquarters staff as those become available through this through the city's uh, uh, capacities. So maybe by the summer, do you think you'll be able? To I, get I'm back on I'm plane? hopeful that I I will be traveling uh, in May. Okay. Well, happy travels and thanks uh, thanks for your time, David. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner in New York. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter at Breaking Views and at Rob Wilcox. Thank you.